0: Welcome to The Barrier
1: Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. My name is Erin Mullino-Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner at Cognitive Behavior Institute. Today, we are very excited to have our guest, uh, Dr. Maggie Mulqueen, and we are going to be discussing cancer culture and therapy. Uh, Maggie is a psychologist in Brookline, Massachusetts, where she has maintained a private practice for over 30 years. She is the author of, on our own terms, Redefining Competence and Femininity, and most of her work can be found at DrMaggieMulqueen.com. So Dr. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Barrier Breakdown. Uh, Very excited to discuss cancer cult or cancer cancel. (laughs) Hold on a second. So thank you so much for joining us today on the Barrier Breakdown. We're very excited to discuss uh, cancel culture. Uh, Can you share with our listeners a little bit about how, how did your, what, what path led you to mental health?
0: Sure. Well, good morning. Like many people in our field, um, it was my own going into therapy for the first time that began um, my interest in the field. I uh, My first therapy experience was when I was a sophomore in college and um, it opened my eyes to a whole new way of thinking about myself and the world. And um, I'm a woman of the age of pre title nine. So, really the options you know, that I thought were available to me were to be a teacher or a nurse. And um, I was studying education um, as an undergraduate and it, it really was not where I wanted to be. And through the process of my own therapy, I, I came to um, be inquisitive about, you know was this a field that I might be interested in? And so I made that choice um, for graduate school um, and I went from undergraduate straight to graduate school and decided to pursue um, the world of psychotherapy. And I feel like I'm one of the lucky people for whom, you know, my work life is really my calling. It has been a great, um, a great fit for me. And um, I love my work. So...
1: Yes, wonderful. Um, And I know that you've uh, we mentioned in your bio that you've been in private practice for over thirty years. And can you tell us a little bit about um, working in private practice? You know, is that have you um, is that what is your true passion as far as you know uh, clients in that in that environment?
0: Um, So when I started out um, when I was in graduate school. I thought I was going to be an academic and I looked at academic positions, um, but I made the decision that really, that although I was working on my own book at the time, that doing research and stuff was not really, didn't speak to me as much as working with people. And so I've done many things, which is one of the things, greatest things I think about being a psychologist. I mean, I have taught, I have, you know, worked. Um, for organizations, I've had my own practice, I've I've been able to do a multitude of things um, to write. Um, And one of the reasons I so appreciate private practice for many years, I was a college counselor, Um, but there you're really set to the academic schedule. And so there's great turnover and um, private practice allows for a depth of conversation that is frankly, almost unique anymore in this society. I mean, I've known people for years and years and years, and um, that is deeply fulfilling to me in terms of finding the meaning in my own life. Um, And one of the things I also like about private practice is that it's my own business. And that's been a really important thing for me um, as a woman to grow into understanding what it means to run a business, to be able to talk to people about you know, um, all the things that go into that in terms of, you know, having my own office and charging people fees and collecting money and figuring out um, that I'm a business owner and that that's, you know, that's not taught in graduate school. (laughs) And um, I think Dr. Gerard can say amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) And how to, to learn to present myself and manage that. Um, But I really do, love the autonomy. of, And and it's not for everybody. I mean, private practice can also be very lonely, but I have really flourished with the autonomy um, over these years.
1: Wonderful. And can you let's talk a little bit about uh, how cancel culture has made its way into therapy? Uh, What are your thoughts on that? So you know, it's not a term that I love. Let me just say that I know, I mean, because I keep, I keep I keep, her not, <laughs> I keep stumbling over it and right. you know, it's Monday. Maybe I haven't had enough coffee. I'm not <laughs> sure, but in my head, it's very smooth, but on my tongue, it doesn't really right. like as much. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a term that comes naturally to me either, but it is okay. the vernacular. And so um, I think, I think the ways in which it's, you know, there's a bit of a chicken and an egg, right? In what ways does therapy reflect the culture and in what ways does the culture reflect therapy? I mean, you know, when people are interested in therapy, I mean, there's a give and take here. And so what, what has become increasingly concerning to me is the premise of therapy is trust. I mean, it's establishing a trusting relationship with somebody. You can't have an effective therapy relationship if it's not grounded in trust. And part of that, how we establish trust with another person is the belief that they will give us a chance, right? So if there's, if there's you know, a disagreement or an impasse or um, a conflict, You will give me an opportunity to explain myself, and I will be listened to, and you can trust that I will listen to you. And that really flies in the face of what cancel culture is about, because cancel culture is saying that if someone has erred, that means that they will be, um, there will be a rush to judgment rather than an attempt to be helpful. And for certain egregious acts, you know, there's probably supportable reasons for doing that but within a therapy relationship um, when people come in so worried about being judged rather than being heard um, I think it has challenged how you establish that trust because now a therapy relationship looks ever more different from their other relationships than it used to and the fear of you know being judged is much higher on everybody's mind. You know, the, the, you know, it's, and I think cancel culture is, you know, an extension beyond political correctness. It's, you know, it's it, it, it uh, on a very simple level, one first thing is when people come into therapy, they're also, they often worry, can they curse? you know they or they'll apologize they'll say you know they'll say something and then they'll say oh excuse me and i give them permissions like i've heard these words before and it's okay <laughs> but it's letting people speak how they speak allows them to then deepen the conversation show their authentic self exactly or learn what is our authentic self well sure. oh,
2: that's an interesting Yeah. No, I think that's an interesting piece that you make as a therapist myself. I think you kind of summed it up there in a way I hadn't thought about it, that clients coming in are very much heightened just like the rest of the world, but that impacts the ability for us, our common factors, be able to connect with them and and them feel free because of their their life experience about what that's going to be and kind of make some assumptions based upon the therapist. Uh, And it makes it that much more difficult, interesting enough.
0: That's right. And I think I think it also as a therapist for me, you know, in terms of what we might, how we might listen or what we might suggest or what we might feel our options for somebody, we have to, we also have to be realistic, you know, that there, there really might be much more dramatic impact if somebody speaks up to their boss um, or if a boss speaks to, you know, an employee than there used to be, that that fear is real. That's not all in their head. That's not all an intrapsychic. Issue the consequences these days, the availability of social media, the concerns about um, you know hiring practices, um, Title IX issues, all of that are very real and need to be taken seriously. You know, I, because I work in the Boston area, a number of people in my practice are academics, and you know what it means to be teaching in a college environment right now is different. It's not all in the professor's head. That, you know, that the concern about what will happen with student evaluations or what their syllabi, the requirements of their syllabi to, you know, how they present their material. So I think it's a dance that we need to be honest is happening and acknowledge and then talk about how within a therapy relationship, we're going to manage that so that we can trust one another.
2: No, I, I agree. I think, you know, you look, look to myself in more recent times, and even in intervention like exposure-based, uh, a typical exposure uh, that comes to mind that I would make someone do and kind of brought it up as a, an example, but it was specific to one gender I was discussing with another, and they actually didn't receive that well, uh, that I their concern was, and I could understand from their perspective, I should have given it more thought, but typically that had not been an issue with either gender up until that point. On the other point is the sense of advocacy versus client centered ethics. With at least in the uh, NESW code of ethics, you know, where does advocacy go? Where does the client go? Particularly depending upon if a client says things that is offensive, what is the role of the therapist in there? Uh, and that's even been controversial in discussions, even internally about you know letting people make their decisions. But where do you go with that? It's it has become more complex on on all levels.
0: Totally, and and I think. Um, Who gets to decide what's offensive, right? And how you know how is that understood is really important, Um, you know, because there are times when people say things to quote unquote let off steam, and that's you know in the past we've been supportive of that, but now there might be consequences to that that are are very dramatic. and to go back to something you said earlier about assumptions, I think that's also, you know, I think about, um, I don't know if this is a topic you wanna to veer into, but I think about the, the day Trump was elected. I mean, every person in my office that day was crying in the waiting room <laughs> before their session. And they, so they kind of had an assumption that thought I would agree with them that this was a bad outcome for the election. Now, I actually know that there are people in my practice who voted for Trump. Um, That's not something they would make public in given where I practice in, you know, blue Massachusetts. But where do we go with that in terms of nodding in agreement with, with clients or also challenging them about how those assumptions are helping them or not helping them in terms of a group think? that can become quite
2: dangerous. So, Particularly in Western PA, uh, it's quite conservative. There's a big mix leaning more towards Republicans. So we had, I think, both political parties coming in at one point, or depending on the election, we kind of get that on both sides. And it's right, because, you know, how, can you be relate to the client? Can you walk through their shoes? But where does it become not genuine? Or is it not genuine, even if you can relate to them and you have different views? So it's it's interesting times. And one of the things I agree with is, uh, you know, I wish during an inflection point in society like this, there would be some level of forgiveness or flexibility to allow people to make mistakes, even for kids. Let's take it down to that level where they, we know they make mistakes more so than others because they're going to learn. But the consequences of such are so uh, adult-like in the academic school setting and such. They, uh, it can be very harsh, and I've seen many examples uh, it's It's not a difficult time for anybody, and I wonder if that's reflective in all the mental health rates, suicide rates, and everything we're seeing that inflexibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh I think I think very much so and I think I think it's also the difference of that in our current time there's so little distinction between private and public. I mean, you could have a mistake before and it would be a very small circle of people who would know about it and that's not true anymore and it's instant and 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 i would also you know underline the use of your word learn i'm not sure what children are learning are they really learning why those thoughts feelings expressions or are they just learning to cover them up and to not say them and that's where i feel like therapy rooms ironically are becoming almost the last places people can speak the uncomfortable the not politically correct thing but then within that what happens if someone says things or I say things as a therapist that are offensive to the other person um, you know can there be forgiveness like you know in, the, in previous days when you know I don't think every th- therapy session means that the, the, the client walks out happy so I have to be able to tolerate when someone's unhappy with me but' I think not- it's a- but yeah, it's not afraid that they're going to go on social media and say, you know, this is the crappiest thing. <laughs> Here comes your Google
1: one star review. <laughs>
0: right. Exactly.
2: Exactly. No, but now I hear you. But, you know, I have found one example comes to mind where a client just knew I was on vacation and asked how vacation was. But, uh, and I was so, uh, conditioned in school not to talk about personal life, I kind of just cut it off. So I really don't feel comfortable talking about it. And I could just see the shades of the, go, the whole demeanor change. And I, I'm like, oh, I stepped into it, which I quickly went around and fixed and say, hey, I apologize. I kind of explained why I did that. Uh, and then, you know, I've seen that client for a long time afterwards. And I think it was a good learning experience. So I was human, what my intent was, got to explain it. Seemed like they, they accepted, they stayed for a long time. Particularly in that work person's world, not a lot of that apologies and making mistakes were going on. So it was actually very therapeutic for me to screw up in a sense, if you want to say, or well, walk into something I didn't know about. And you're right. I think it's much more challenging now uh, about how you go about that and where areas of gray maybe aren't so gray to any one particular individual at this time. It's more black and white makes it much more complicated.
0: I also think we don't get as much practice to do the forgiveness, to have the you know uncomfortable conversations. I mean if people are being shut down or afraid to speak out, then you know what I you know in terms of helping people, it's really you know helping them with that skill set of how do you have difficult conversations? And if and if you're not able to practice it because you're afraid of making mistakes to your earlier point, mistakes are not seen as forgivable, then we're only going to make the situation worse because people then don't know how to have a conversation and to ask for understanding or to to put themselves in a position where they're willing to learn.
2: Um, No, it's a good point.
0: And then does
1: that cause them to refrain from exploring those thoughts, obviously, because you know there's fear, like you had mentioned, of, of and end. and
0: that fear may not just and I really want to un- emphasize this that fear may not just be, you know, an intrapsychic issue. That may that fear might be very real right now, in this society. It could be based on the fact that they've seen somebody else in their you know workplace get shunned for making the off color joke or speaking out of turn or or standing up to somebody who made the off color you know like you know being called a snowflake or what you know it goes both ways and i think that really needs to be appreciated that this is you know there isn't only one end of the continuum on this this issue about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable anymore lives on both ends of the continuum and that's part of what I think makes it so hard for us to work with it.
1: Well, and you so, make a uh, oh, go, ahead. Ahead.
2: go ahead, Aaron. Go
1: ahead. <laughs> We're both excited. Uh, you make <laughs> a great point when you talk about speaking out against something because sometimes let's talk about the silence piece too. Because if you're not right, if you're if you're for something or you're against something, but if you don't choose and you don't tiptoe that line, that sometimes also has an impact on your reputation or
0: how others view you. Exactly, right. I mean, because, you know, like right now, you know, we're having this conversation while the whole Supreme Court issue of Roe v. Wade is very much in the forefront and many people would say, you know, on that issue or the climate, the time is, you know, the time is gone for you to be a silent observer on the sideline, you know, and to go back to your earlier point about how we might have been trained in graduate school about, being, you know, kind of the the blank slate, that position is far less understood and appreciated in this current culture. You know, people people want the litmus test first to know if I can trust you with my inner thoughts and feelings.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of it's either this or that. Uh, how do you prime your clients, what, your new clients or current clients, to kind of? Uh, for what you're talking about, creating an environment of exploration?
0: How do I, what was the first word you used?
2: How do you prime them? How do you get them Um, uh, ready uh, or to to set the environment to hopefully make it therapeutic for them? um, Allow that to happen, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So the first thing I would say is that, you know, I do what we're legally and ethically bound to in terms of explaining HIPAA. And, and making the distinction about, you know, what will be shared and will, what, would, what are the conditions that, under which I would, you know, would break confidentiality and share information and then assure them that I would not break confidentiality for any other reason. So to really, you know, a first session never ends without me doing a, a pretty detailed explanation of what that is. And if it's someone completely new to therapy, I also make sure during the first session to explain to them how the therapy process works, and what they can expect from me and what I expect from them. So I, I see it as a teaching moment. I don't expect people to come to therapy and understand how it works. Um, there's a learning process um, to, I think, how to use therapy effectively. And part of my role as a therapist is to help teach somebody how to make the most out of being in therapy. Um, so I see it as a teaching moment as well. Um, and then I think some of it is modeling. Um, so for example, you know, if someone wants to use profanity, you know, I may mirror that and use some myself to relax them that they don't, you know, that kind of, you know, it's like when people go to the doctor and think, you know, they have to use the technical term for a body part that they never <laughs> use any, you know, it's like, we don't have to do that in here. We can, we can have a more, I'm interested in how they use language rather than me uh, ascribing that. Um, but I think the fundamental trust in a therapy relationship is, is we show up, you know, I show up week after week I'm there on time I'm ready to listen the way I you know it's I had to adapt with covid but you know in my office i mean there's a, there's an atmosphere that says this is your time and i'm here for you and i give my undivided attention which is again a unique thing <laughs> for people these days um, to have 50 minutes of undivided attention and encourage them to give themselves the opportunity to not be multitasking during a therapy session. And I think over time, you get traction for that. You mentioned COVID,
1: and I guess I'm, I'm interested also,
0: uh, prior to COVID, were you strictly doing
1: face-to-face sessions or were you doing any telehealth?
0: I only did, it was strictly face-to-face. There'd be the occasional telephone session, um, I got introduced to Zoom during COVID because Just of COVID. like everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but, so, but I did some telephone sessions, you know, if a client couldn't come in because they had a sick child or they were, you know, vacation or something, right. but basically it was completely face-to-face. Gotcha. And, and how
1: did, you know, are you, what is, what are you, are you doing both face-to-face now and in
0: telehealth or? I am. Um, yeah. My practice has really changed. Um. Uh, I go into my office one day a week um, for in-person and um, although like I put that on pause during the Omicron surge. So it, it, it varies a bit depending on where COVID is in my, in, in my area. Um, and um, and my had- other three days I do remote. So I, I okay. see patients four days a week.
1: Okay, and have you, have you noticed any changes in that trust relationship from being virtual to being face-to-face. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: So initially um, I was at a point where I wasn't taking new clients on, Um, you know, my practice was full. And so, um, so all the people who went, I went remote with, I'd already known them and met them in person. Sure. COVID has lasted long enough (laughs) and um, so that I have taken on some people um, who I've never met in person. And I do feel that difference um, of, because one of the things, watching somebody in my waiting room walk into my office right there, I learn a lot just in their body language and how they carry themselves and how they sit on the couch and, and, and you don't get that. On Zoom. Um, So I also, there were some people who chose to only do phone. They didn't want the visual for a variety of reasons, privacy, whatever. And about six months into COVID, I said to all of those people, I want one session where there is a visual, because I did not trust that necessarily what they were telling me was the full scope. And I wanted to make sure that my visual of them lined up with what I was hearing from them, and then I said, "I'm happy to go back to phone, but I'm going to occasionally say I want to have a visual, because I would, in the olden days, I would always have visuals, and sure. and I thought it was important to, mm-hmm. to to challenge that a little bit. The other side, you know, some of the positives, if you will, that came in terms of trust, was. People could present. It's always one of the issues with individual therapy, right? Is you only get one side of the story, and people could present very differently when they put themselves together and came into my office. And through Zoom, I was invited into their homes, and the the trust went to a different place because, you know, I saw people in much less polished, (laughs) you know, Some people, you know, therapy sessions in their bed, in their bedroom because that, you know, there were three children outside knocking on the door. And I mean, you know, the boundaries shifted and we had to trust one another differently, I think, um, in that level of intimacy, that it wasn't going to be quite as, the boundaries were not set in the same way.
1: Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense, and I, I could see how, um, like you said, that opens up a whole new level of um, exploration. Even
0: seeing their environment and yeah, I met members of their family. I mean, you know, here's my dog. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, or somebody you know opened a door. Opens the
1: door, right? Right. I
0: didn't know you were in there. You know. Yeah. Right. Sure. right.
1: No, I'm I'm sure there could be a whole a whole series on that. So Kevin, did you have anything else you wanted to mention or wrap up here before we?
2: No, I, I, I know Maggie has a, a book. If you could mm. talk a bit about the book, uh, I'd like to hear about your, your, your book.
0: Um, sure, thanks. Um, so my, my book um, came out of my doctoral thesis and then I did a follow-up study and, and the question in my book was looking at the notion of our sense of competence and sexual identity. Um, Because in our culture, competence is associated with masculinity. And so through um, in-depth interviews over longitudinal time, what I really examine is the question is how can a woman feel both competent and have a positive sexual identity um, in our society? Because they really stand typically in conflict with one another, and and both are important ingredients of self-esteem. And so what I propose in my book is a new fashion for understanding and defining competence and femininity in such a way that women can have both contribute to their self-esteem rather than being at odds with one another um, and diminishing their self-esteem.
2: Awesome. How would someone find the book if they wanted to? To go and purchase um,
0: it. It's it's old, but it's still available on Amazon these days. But um, uh, it is still bit, It's it's still in print. So wonderful.
1: Well, thank you so much for the time today, uh, Maggie. We certainly appreciated this. This was a great conversation, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how this continues to evolve over time.
0: Very much so. Thank you both.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. And to our uh, listeners for The Barrier Breakdown, thank you so much for joining us this week with Dr. Maggie Mulqueen. And we will see you next week. We hope you all stay safe and healthy. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, disrupting mental health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute, and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram, at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe.
2: We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.